talk about the causes of suffering, and they say it's clinging, aversion, and delusion. And I've heard a lot of times people talk about the clinging and, and the aversion, and I see that in my daily life. I see that in my practices also. But the other part about the delusion and ignorance, from, from your teaching, from the way you've been teaching us, how does that factor in to our practice? <clears throat> if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, as you know, all of these things can be looked at at several different levels. Uh, if we take the most the most fundamental level that you can look at this at, sort of the root level, is the the cause of all of our problems is uh, the actions of, of our body, speech, and mind that arise out of craving, and that craving is uh, the, the forms of craving are uh, what you described as clinging and aversion or desire and aversion, the, the two basic forms, and they exist by virtue of ignorance that we have, and that's the delusion that we're referring to. So, in an all-encompassing way, ignorance is the cause of all of our problems then. Because out of ignorance, there arises craving in its different forms. And out of craving, we cause our own suffering, and we do things that contribute to the suffering of others. In terms of our practice, we want to come to recognize the particular manifestations of uh, of desire and aversion, clinging and aversion in our life, recognize them uh, by practicing mindful awareness, and to the degree that we are able to uh, set aside at least the most uh, uh, harmful and destructive uh, actions that arise out of that. But ultimately, we've got to work on on the ignorance that allows this process to keep on going. You know, we could never just through modifying our behavior and modifying our attitudes and being mindful of the arising of uh, desire and aversion. Uh, overcome all these tendencies and eradicate them from our life and find the solution. Ultimately, we have to overcome the ignorance that's at the root of that. So, speaking in these these very fundamental terms, then, all of our practice is ultimately about eventually overcoming that ignorance, replacing it with wisdom. through developing right view and overcoming doubt and uh, uh, achieving insight into the characteristics of, of reality, uh, particularly of emptiness and selflessness. Uh, uh, and then understanding 
how our mind keeps constructing this cycle of behaviors with the suffering that is associated with it. And then reaching that point where uh, by you see already by this point you've, you've acquired a lot of uh, insight and a lot of wisdom of a certain kind. But then uh, eventually uh, when, when this becomes uh, well enough established in your mind then you can even if it's only briefly for a moment put an end to the cycle of perpetual construction based on ignorance and, and driven by craving and then then comes the true wisdom the ultimate wisdom that sees things as they actually are and now and now you have the most powerful tool of all to keep uh, to to complete the development of this wisdom and that's how you so so in a, in a nutshell that's a whole description of the practice of the four noble, noble truths in the eightfold path is this addressing where your question is coming from now there is just a very very briefly if we look at this at, at the most superficial level you know of saying well why do we do the things that we do and why do we feel the way that we do uh, all day long every day and there we can see yes I'm, I'm, I'm clinging to this and I'm clinging to that and then I'm experiencing disappointment or, or anger or irritation or, or whatever uh, I'm experiencing uh, that uh, there is aversion to uh, those things that we don't like and that we find unpleasant and uh, that likewise is contributing to it and then at the same time um, there is a lot of ordinary confusion, delusion, and ignorance, which plays a big role too. I mean, we jump to conclusions and we make assumptions and we misunderstand and we overreact or underestimate or we do all these other things. You know. um, when we look closely at those superficial activities, that we might label readily as delusion and confusion, we see that, that they contain within them uh, at a subtler level desire and aversion and this more profound kind of ignorance that is their cause. Why do we jump to conclusions? Uh, it's because we see what we want to see or see what we're afraid of seeing, right? That's desire and aversion, both of those, you know which is, and that desire that causes us to see what we want to see or the aversion that causes us to see what we're afraid of seeing, uh, this, this is, uh, uh, this comes out of the ignorance of uh, not understanding that things are not are really the way they appear to be, that our mind is perpetually generating an image of uh, a representation of reality that is based on its own concepts and predispositions rather than any existing external reality and then reacting to them. So, so I, I'd summarize this as saying that, that those, those three, which can actually be reduced to two, craving and ignorance, 
are ultimately can be seen and understood as being at the root of all of our problems. But they're easier to work with when we divide them into three. And then even at the most superficial level we find that craving and uh, and, and the more profound ignorance are, are the cause of, of all of the, the manifestations that occur moment to moment and day to day. Thank you. That was helpful. I'm glad. So, uh, <clears throat> Audrey, you had a question? Yeah. Um, it has to do with the straightness of the spine while you're sitting. Mm-hmm. And uh, wasn't a problem before when I was doing yoga, uh, but now it's come to my awareness that. You know, as the meditation goes on, there'll be this point where I find myself here, which is like perhaps the correct Mahamudra posture based on some of the things I've heard in the Kagyu and not correct based on other things. But um, I wonder, well, should I move my body now that I'm aware of this? I just need to do this. Mm-hmm. Should I do that? Or I just, you know, I don't have the fluidity of body, so I'm, it's not like there's pain, but I'm just noticing this collapsed. Mm-hmm. Should I keep, keep awareness on not collapsing it? And just, does he understand the problem? I, I believe, I, 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 let me just clarify though. <clears throat> You're, you're, you're referring to the fact that when you meditate, there's a tendency for your, for there to be some forward slumping. Yeah. yeah, and I guess the context is movement gets really subtle, mm-hmm. you know. Like this movement is an important movement at some point. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder, should I make it? With the premise being that you should keep your spine as... I know what the correct posture is, and when I notice I'm not in it, should I go into it, or should I just... If you, any time you're meditating, you notice that your body has slumped, and then just notice that and make the correction, and, right. and, and do it just as a part of the meditation. That's, that's, that's perfectly all right. At the same time, don't make too much of it, you know, of the idea, oh, there I am, something again, because... Um, I, I know that some teachers in some traditions feel that all of these details are so very important and if you don't sit perfectly straight well there's no way that you can succeed in the practice and uh, I, I don't agree with that and you know I, if that were the case then uh, that would mean that only those human beings who had the body and were at an age to uh, that they could meditate in a particular posture could ever succeed in these practices and that is nonsense <laughs> so I mean the, there is value and importance in posture but it can be exaggerated and, 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 and made to seem to be far more important than it really is yeah well it, yeah it's relative to the person but I'm not 
Yeah. Of course, and there are certain and so, benefits being able to use your body posture uh, yeah. to affect your mind. And so uh, what is appropriate is if you're meditating and, and you notice that your posture has slipped in one way or another, then just say, oh good, then make the correction and go right on as if it never happened. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. That will be enough. <laughs> I've been on several long retreats, and I always found them extremely valuable, though sometimes extremely difficult. Um, though then again, I sometimes find regular life also sometimes extremely difficult. And, um, I've been How just, unusual. Hmm? How yeah, yes. And for the last week or two, I've been finding that I've been thinking a lot about wanting to do another long retreat. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I've been feeling very strongly that, no, no, I don't want to go off and I need to be in my life right now. I, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to fly off and go somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I have two very strong impulses that seem to contradict. One is, I want to go do another long retreat. One is, I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to live my life for a while. Mm-hmm. And so sitting here, it occurred to me that I don't know how. Like, is, is there a, how does one know when one is ready for a retreat? Is there any light you can shed on that, on making that, that decision? Well, when you start having uh, thoughts and you're drawn to do a a long retreat, that's an indication that you're ready. But in terms of your practice, I mean, really, what it—the real purpose of a long retreat—is to move you forward in your practice and uh, and perhaps bring you to the the ultimate goal of your practice. So you can also just look objectively at your practice and say, does it seem as though that uh, I would really benefit at this point in time? Not that it would feel good or I would like it or my last long retreat was really great and, and it'd be really fun to have that experience again, but you know, um, in, in my practice, can I see that if I had the opportunity to put that kind of time into it, that I, I'm, I'm ready to uh, move to the next level, so to speak. So, uh, use that as an important part of the criteria as well. But, if you're drawn to do a long retreat and you're in a position where you can, then do so. That's part of living your life, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think that one of the things I've been feeling is that I have not kind of come back from my last retreat yet, mm-hmm. that I one of the things that um, seems to happen is that when I come back from retreat, I, I start noticing, well, what's shifted? What's different? Mm-hmm. Who am I now? How, how am I reacting to the world now? And mm-hmm. I don't feel like I've finished that process from the last retreat. Um, so, you know, it, it feels like I've got two contradictory things going on. One is that I, no, no, I must stay in my life right now. I, I, I must see who I am. I must. Not to mention doing things in life that I have promised to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I mean, I'm really feeling kind of drawn well, to well, both. Where does that come from, the idea that, well, you need to figure out who you are and... Yeah. and, and I don't know. It's a thought in my head. It's a thought in your head, yeah. Um, is, is it any part of any traditional teaching you've ever been exposed to that before you move on in your practice, you should stop and figure out 
who you are as a result of what you already did? Yeah, absolutely not. Not that I'm aware of. No, I, I think the, the teacher I went to last would, would say the best thing I could possibly do is just do a year or two or three or four year retreat. And that, that would be the thing to do, never mind this going back into life thing. Well, there's a lot to be gained by going back into life because, uh, for one thing, it, it, it does help you to, uh, to recognize the degree to which you have achieved certain degrees of mastery and the degree to which uh, you've only achieved them under ideal circumstances. And as soon as things get a little more difficult, you realize that, well, I've still got work to do. There's a value in that. And also... There's a lot of uh, uh, there's other benefits. Uh, practicing in the presence of, of distractions and the pressures that life create uh, can intensify your practice. It can diffuse your practice, but it can intensify it. So that's possibly uh, a factor. And of course, there's a lot to be done of service to to the world when you're in yeah. living your life as well. So there it's not as though there aren't good reasons to, you know, come out of retreat sometime from time to time and live in the world. But I would say that by all means anytime you feel drawn to retreat and you're in a position to do that, do it. Yeah, just go ahead and, and, and do it. So where are you thinking of going for retreat next? Well, I'm thinking of two different retreats. Mm-hmm. The teacher I worked with previously is coming to the United States for a month in June to New Mexico. Um, isn't he coming in August? The Vecanada? Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's June. Was it June? Or July? Anyway, yes. And right. then I was thinking also next winter of doing two months in the Forest Refuge where I've also been before. Yeah. Ideally, I would do three months with Saito Vakananda, but he's only going to be here for one month. Yeah. But you could um, always go to Lumbini. And well, that's where I've done my last three months, <laughs> and I certainly could go back there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that's wonderful. That's really good. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm still hoping I might get a chance to go and sit with, with Ufi this summer. I thought it was in August, but maybe it's in June, July, whenever it is. Yeah, yeah. If I don't do something about one year ahead of though, there's not going to be any space left by that time. Yeah, I, I registered months ago because I was worried about missing it. Yeah. So I registered before I knew if I could do it. Um, I registered before I went to Dumbini, so I didn't even know if I would want to do it. But I still <laughs> wanted to be able to do it if I... Anyway. I, I think that's a wonderful idea, to do that retreat. Yeah, be great. And Thank Forest you. Refuge, who would be leading that retreat? My experience there has been so good that I sort of, I don't know that they haven't put out the schedule yet for next uh, January. Oh, January, I see. So you're not thinking of a specific yeah, retreat. Just there are certainly teachers mm-hmm. I love that I would be very yeah. thrilled to work with. But my experience has been so good that I, I would feel pretty comfortable just yeah. working with anyone. Yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah, I'd say go for it. We've still got a few minutes left, and welcome to those of you who just arrived at this evening. A few minutes left if anybody else has a quick question that they want to 
to ask. Yes. You know when in meditation when you see the colors come up and they arise and they go back and forth and all kinds of different shapes and, and mm-hmm. stuff. Is that kind of what it really is like? Is that kind of I mean what things really are? <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Like you're sitting in meditation, and so colors come up. Yeah. Yeah, I see colors, you know, go in and out. Mm-hmm. You know, and then those You're asking, are those colors you see real? Yeah. Well, well yeah, I wonder, or is that how uh, reality really is? If it's just raw, I mean, this is shapes and forms, and then we just concept or something on it. Well, the, the fact is that with your eyes open, like right now, yes, all your eyes are providing you is, uh, is uh, colors and, and shapes that are actually derived from different intensity of those colors, and your mind is, is constructing from that. So in that regard, yes, that's what's happening all the time. But you're talking about in meditation with your eyes closed and colors mm-hmm. coming. If your eyes are closed, then those colors are not coming in the same way they are now when your eyes are open. So you're saying, okay, is that are, are they real? Yes, well, absolutely, they're real. But uh, you say, but the question is, is sort of, are they real or, I, or am I imagining them? Well, they're real and you are imagining them. Because, of course, your eyes are closed. Where are they coming from? They're coming from your mind. But that doesn't mean they're not real. It means that they just uh, have a different origin than those that you see when your eyes are open. And as a phenomenon in meditation, um, unless you're sitting there deliberately trying to generate a sense of red in, uh, in, in front of your closed eyelids, or a sense of blue light or something like that, unless you're deliberately trying to generate that, it's, is, it is coming from your imagination, it's coming from your mind, but it's coming spontaneously. And so it's real in that sense. It's, it's a real meditation phenomenon that many people, it's very common when people meditate, to see... Uh, to have visual phenomena of color and light. Sometimes the light is incredibly bright and brilliant, too. Uh, astoundingly so. And, and, and so the question of, well, is this real or is this my imagination, just doesn't have any meaning anymore. It's something that happens, and it's real. But it's not, it's not something that you're making up and fooling yourself about. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, and, the, and sounds. Or any kind mm-hmm. of something, sensation is. Uh, yeah, there are definitely a lot of phenomena like that, bodily sensations and sounds that people experience in meditation, that they're not coming from external sources of stimulation of the sense organ. They're produced. Uh, uh, by the mind, 
but they're very real and they're highly consistent. Uh, not everybody experiences them, but many do, and it, it is a, a part of what happens in the normal course of practice. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. Well, well let's get comfortable and uh, we'll do the Nandala prayer together and then sit for 45 minutes. select group of very special people. Actually, we always have a select group of very special people. It's, it's a little more, little more select than usual. The diehards. What should we talk about? Could I? Can we just um, touch on that one um, thing that you were talking about uh, several sessions ago about not past lives? You know how you're. Mm-hmm. I that still confused me about um, so when you when you die or something mm-hmm. okay but there isn't I mean if there's no past lives right there's no there's no future lives I mean it just goes I, I wasn't sure what how you said the Buddha explained it <laughs> um. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about that you were re- re- referring to, but just in general, okay. You see that there is this notion that we really cling to uh, that, uh, of being some kind of permanent abiding entity, or that we want to be. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. I'll just point something out about the idea of rebirth and reincarnation. That in the, in the East, where for a very long time, before the Buddha, the common belief was in reincarnation, and that we keep being reborn lifetime after lifetime that we're the same person, we just take on a a, a new body when the old body dies. And the attitude towards that in the East has always been, oh, what a terrible thing. And the liberation that was being sought was liberation from the endless round of of, uh, cyclic rebirth. 
But, of course, human nature being what it is, um, we fear death because we fear annihilation and we fear the, the loss of this self that's so precious to us. And so, also, uh, we can look at the idea of reincarnation as, as being, you know, oh, good, oh, so I'm, I'm not going to die. I'm, I'm just going to change from being in this form to being in some other form. And so it's something that, uh, that we cling to as, a, as an idea, as a notion to comfort ourselves and to overcome our fear of, of death and, and of annihilation and so forth. And there's something very similar in the, in the West is that, except that the idea has been that when you die, uh, you would either go to heaven or hell, but you'd still continue to exist and provides that kind of reassurance. What the Buddha inserted into this ongoing philosophical and philosophical discussion and religious speculation was the realization that the self that we're hoping to save somehow and the self that we might imagine as being reborn in the future and having lived infinitely in the past, that self doesn't exist. There's no such thing as something. That the self that we are and that we imagine ourselves to be is in fact impermanent, completely impermanent. It's, it is and constantly changing. It's not the same at any time. And so whether, you, you know, if, if, you're, if you look to the idea of reincarnation and rebirth, as a way of, uh, of, of finding, of, of relieving yourself of the fear and concern uh, of, about annihilation and death. This is fallacious, and without realizing it, you're also reinforcing exactly that notion which is the cause of all of our problems. It's the cause of our personal suffering and it's the cause of all of our actions that contribute to the suffering of others. It comes out of uh, one form or another of selfishness and selfishness is based on the idea that I am this self-existently real uh, uh, being and, and therefore I need to act out of my own interests at all times. Then what does rebirth mean? Well, and so yes, you come to this part. What what does rebirth mean? What why did the Buddha say? Now, and this is another thing that's very important that in Buddhism, as opposed to uh, uh, various Hindu traditions, they speak of rebirth rather than reincarnation. And the Buddha basically is saying that the idea that you are this self that has lived before and that will live again, you know, this this is the idea of reincarnation, to be 
incarnated to be in a body, that there is the same self that that just comes on one body after another. And he said, that's not what happens. He says, he, he spoke of rebirth instead. So what are we talking about? What does that mean? And I just let me tell you a little bit more about what the Buddha said about this in, in a number of his teachings. He said, you as an individual, the self that you cling to is nothing more than the five aggregates, all of which are impermanent, constantly changing, arising as a result of conditions. Not uh, anything more than that. And clinging to these five aggregates as a self is a cause of suffering. And then he also made it very clear that there is that this this being all that you are as an individual, none of these aggregates is reborn. There's one very famous sutra where one uh, one of his monks uh, was going around saying, "Well, it, it's uh, consciousness aggregate. That's that's what is reborn. Consciousness is reborn." And the Buddha, the other monks tried to persuade him this wasn't true, and then they went and told the Buddha, and the Buddha scolded him, and he said to him that that this consciousness aggregate that you speak of, that too arises and passes away, and that is not what is reborn. Um, a little bit more, when, when asked about rebirth, the Buddha did compare it to lighting one candle from another and said that when you take this candle and you light another, there is nothing that passes from this candle to the other. You know, the wax, the wick, everything that's here stays here and burns up and is gone. And he said he compared rebirth to lighting of one candle from another. Um, And then... On another occasion, um, speaking of karma, uh, you know, and there's this idea that well, if we got, there must be a self, otherwise, you know, that there's karma. If I make bad karma, you know, there must be a self that makes the karma, and uh, and the same self that realizes the fruit of the karma, you know? and. Uh, the Buddha made it very clear that the only thing that it's cause and effect and the only thing that goes into the future is the fruits of the karma. There's nothing carrying that karma. In the sense of a self. There's not a self that that karma belongs to. Okay. So, and beyond that, there's not a lot else actually in the sutras themselves to make this really clear. And so there has, over the last 2,500 years, been a lot of confusion about this. If we talk about rebirth, what's being reborn? And there's been a lot of views tossed around that are uh, uh, not necessarily supportable on the basis of anything that the Buddha taught. Well, let's look at some other things, okay? Karma 
karma is what passes from one lifetime to another. If we were to look into the past, what we would be looking for is the volitional actions that give rise to the predispositions that are found in an individual in a particular lifetime. And so we would say that that person, the way that person is now, the predispositions that they have, that are the basis of how they create their reality, those predispositions are the result of past actions. And so that's the karma that is inherited. And the things that you do in this life, the volitional actions that you perform, will produce future results. They will condition uh, five aggregates uh, (coughs) in some other form in the future. And so this is what is being talked about and and rebirth. Your genes. You are, your body is the way it is because you inherited genes from your mother and father, which they got from their parents, your grandparents, and so on and so forth. And the chain of causality in that is, is clear now. It wasn't 50 or so years ago, but nowadays, due to modern science, it is. And we can understand why we manifest the characteristics that uh, our parents and grandparents and ancestors do. You can see that information is carried on. But just because you might look like your grandmother, you, you probably never, ever had the thought that, you know, I am my grandmother. Right? It would never occur to you that I, I look like my grandmother because I am my grandmother. And with knowledge of genetics, you'd say, well, oh, well, I look like my grandmother because the same genes that made her look that way, I inherited them. They got passed along through my mother or father, and so now they're in my cells, and that's why I look like. So, when we're talking about rebirth, and we're talking about karma, it should be thought of more in those terms. Not that you, the you that you are exists right now. It's not the same self that it was 10 years ago or will be 10 years from now. But in terms of the you that you think yourself, think of yourself as now and as 10 years ago and possibly 10 years from now, there are many different things that are causally connected there. You know, the body. You you probably don't really think that you are your body, although your body is a very important thing. But, um, and there's probably very few, if any, uh, atoms and molecules in your body now that were there 10 years ago or 20 years ago. 
But there has always been this particular body, and uh, some parts have been added and taken away. So there's a bodily continuity, there's a physical continuity there. Um, And, of course, there's the memories. You remember your past. And, of course, the circumstances you find yourself in now uh, are... They, they can be traced back through a series of events and decisions and so forth that connect the you of ten years ago with the you of now. Uh, and your skills. And in other words, we could go on. There's a whole lot of things that, you know, separate strands, uh, interconnected, but still we, we can trace all these different strands, many, many different strands of continuity between the you of ten years ago and the you of now. But nevertheless, objectively, if the you of ten years ago was to walk into the room right now, uh, you'd be really rather different people. You might find it very interesting to talk to each other and get to know each other, but you'd really be different people. But there's a continuity there. From one lifetime to the next, you don't have that bodily continuity, obviously. And we certainly don't have the memories. You know, there are a few uh, comparatively very, very rare instances where uh, usually young children seem to be able to recall being somebody else in another family in another place, but that's pretty rare. For the vast majority of us, there is no memory of uh, any other of being before in any other time and place. At a certain level of spiritual attainment, uh, a person can delve into recollections of previous lives, but that's also comparatively rare. So uh, there isn't the physical continuity, there isn't the memories, there, none of the normal things that we can look at will connect. Uh, the you that exists now and will continuously change and that at some point will die and some particular future person will be born in another time in another place. But the idea of rebirth and karma is saying that that there is something that has to do with your uh, volitional activities and that has to do with future beings' predispositions that represents a continuity and a connection. And that is, and that is real. Or at least, uh, you know, uh, what the Buddha taught us is that is real. But he said that all these other notions that you as a person, as a personality, have lived before or will live again, this is... This is the same kind of illusion. It's it's not the illusion uh, specifically that causes the problem. We don't go out and suffer in the world and cause suffering to others because we believe we're going to be born again. But clinging to the idea that this person is real and substantial in such a way that we would want to be born again is exactly the kind of clinging that does cause our suffering and that does cause us to create suffering for others. 
So it's the same problem, and it's and what he's taught us is that it's illusory, and that it is indeed the most important aspect of delusion and ignorance for us to overcome. Now, are you you're with me so far? Can you follow this? Yeah. Okay. And I guess so. The the karma is the only thing that really goes forward. That's right. And then so then another being who, as you say, is predispositioned or or something. Then, yeah. You know. Right. And then it just keeps going. So, okay. So that the, why, like you know, I was reading an article or something like they the D- Dalai Lama they believe that so and so is like. A reincarnation of their teacher, or, or with Lama Zopa, you know, Lama Yeshi, and, and is am I just misinterpreting that? No, you're not misinterpreting that. <laughs> there are there are different views, and remember, views are views, and there are different levels of understandings of those views. Um, two strongly contrasting views that I could point to. You know, there are um, there are some uh, people that you could find who will basically teach reincarnation, although they call it rebirth and they call themselves Buddhists, and they believe that they are teaching an absolute truth. It's what they believe in, and it's what makes sense to them, and they are convinced of. There are Buddhists, as a matter of fact, one of the most revered uh, saints, if you want to use that word, in Thailand, uh, uh, Buddha Dasa Bhikkhu. Uh, throughout, and he lived to a very old age, and he taught everybody that, you know, this whole idea of reincarnation is not, it's not a Buddhist idea. And rebirth, the way people think of it, it's not what the Buddha taught. It's not a Buddhist idea. And uh, it's, uh, it has nothing to do with Buddhism. He's very unspoken, outspoken about it. Um, there's different views and there's different interpretations. I just finished reading a book, uh, The History of Tibet, which was actually uh, the Dalai Lama uh, and a series, uh, a very long series of interviews with the Dalai Lama. Wonderful book. I really enjoyed it. One of the things I found very interesting was the subject of uh, the Dalai Lama's uh, previous incarnations, you know, uh, and his relationship to them and how he talks about them. And what you'll find there is uh, the Dalai Lama does, in fact, feel a certain connection, but he's very vague uh, uh, in the language he uses to discuss it. But he senses a connection between himself and the fifth Dalai Lama and the thirteenth Dalai Lama. But basically can't relate at all to the rest of them. But nevertheless, for him, this doesn't produce any conflicts at all. Right? And 
you know, so there is a tradition of reincarnation in in Tibetan Buddhism, which really came from from northern India, from Hindu tradition. It's really something that was not a part of early Buddhism. And early Buddhism always made very clear the distinction between reincarnation and rebirth. By the time Buddhism moved uh, from northern India into Tibet, though, the idea of reincarnation was starting to become firmly implanted again. And then it came to be understood at different levels. The Dalai Lama understands the Tibetan tradition of reincarnation at what he describes the uncommon level. It's a very spiritually sophisticated level. And it's not the same as the average Tibetan's view, which is that the 13th Dalai Lama was the same person who died and is reborn as the 14th Dalai Lama. This is the average Tibetan's view, our, our understanding, interpretation. So you have different levels of interpretation and understanding of these doctrines. And it's obvious that the Dalai Lama feels very comfortable with the fact that most Tibetans believe that he is the 14th in a series of reincarnations of the same person, although it's obvious that that's not at all how he understands it. But he sees it as being a serviceable part of the Tibetan Buddhist religious structure. And the impression I have is he just takes it for granted that anybody who carries their spiritual practice to a certain degree will develop a different and higher understanding. And so he sees no problem at all. It's not like we have to worry about well, there's an absolute truth and what these people think is wrong or what these people think is 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 more correct or less correct or something. He doesn't have a problem with that. This, you know, this, this is the way it is and some people see it this way and some people see it this way and there is a difference based on their spiritual maturity and their practice and their understanding. Now, <clears throat> Yeah, so what do you think of that? Well, that's, that is really cool. That explains a lot. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, because if you look at, yeah, if it's just view, and, and mm-hmm. then as they say, as you develop deeper spiritual or more mm-hmm. mature practice, you know, I mean, the truth is truth. Yeah. <laughs> they, they will come, okay. you know. And, you see, the tradition of tulkus in Tibet is I mean, are, are you, you've heard of Tantra? Yes. Okay. <laughs> it is it is the perfect manifestation of Tantra. The basic idea of Tantra is that if a person spends all of their time imagining what it's like to be an enlightened being and then finishes the whole process off by feeling like they have become that being, that they will achieve enlightenment. Now, look what they do with the tulku system. They say, we would like to have all of our monasteries run by enlightened beings. 
you know. And so that's what they do. Is but they take them as young children, and they say to a two or three or four year old, "You are the Dalai Lama. You are the Panchen Lama. You are the Karmapa. You you are uh, Garchen Rinpoche. You are one of the Rinpoches and, and Tulpus." Or, they take a very young child. They are put in the presence of the most spiritually highly developed teachers. And they are taught the doctrine. And they are taught that you are an, an emanation of Chenrezi on, on the, this earth. And you have returned in this body in order to serve the people in this capacity. I mean, that is Tantra. When every day you're told over and again, you are this, and this is what it means to be this, and this is what it means to be a bodhisattva, and, and you're taught about these beings, and then you learn the visualization exercises, and you, you visualize these beings, and then you imagine yourself becoming these beings. Well, then you, you grow up to be a Dalai Lama. You grow up to be the Panchen Lama. You grow up to be these beings. That's Tantra. And, the, and that's Tibet's tantric system. That, uh, I mean, of course, it's not restricted to Tulkus who are told that they are this, it's, but uh, uh, any of the people in, in any of the monks or, or nuns uh, in the monastery who uh, decide that they want to practice in this way can, can learn the practices and, and they can do the same thing, hopefully with the same result. Now, that's kind of talking entirely at the worldly level. Of, of the Tibetan incarnation system. But there is another very, very important level of understanding. Okay. What we're after is awakening, enlightenment, liberation. And what does that have to do with all of this? What is that, anyway? Um, a experiencing nirvana, becoming a Buddha, becoming enlightened. What does that mean? Uh, what does it mean to realize the truth of not-self? Well, let me just see if I can put this into uh, a, 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 to take a a, a deep and complex and subtle subject and, and put it into relatively few words and a few clear statements. The essence of selfhood is separateness. And the idea of self only has any meaning at all in the context of a duality of that which exists, of the universal, universal 
being divided up into that which is self and that which is not self. So, in the Buddhist practice of searching to discover the self, and in the process, discovering over and over again, that's not self, and that's not self, and that's not self. Ultimately, what happens is there's no self left. Everything is not self. But at that point, everything is one. There's no longer this boundary. And uh, I'll point out to you that in other spiritual systems, like uh, the Advaita Vedanta, they do exactly the same thing, except they do it the other way. They say, well, this is just this little, tiny, personal self. And then they expand it to include the whole universe. And voila, we only have one. So we reach the same goal in either way of oneness. Wonderful. Okay. Um, Nirvana, Nirvana, the unborn, the unconditioned, and the unceasing. Um, The undifferentiated, the timeless. Um, Nirvana doesn't come in multiple versions. There's only one nirvana. It is the ultimate reality. In the sutras it said that the Buddha is nirvana. To be a Buddha is to basically to be nirvana, not to see nirvana. Here's me and there's nirvana over there. Not to know nirvana, but to be nirvana, to experience it ultimately. So, you see where this is leading? If in the process of enlightenment you become something which is non-divisible, universal, there's no self. Um, Pure consciousness, wisdom consciousness, Uh, In fact, a lot of the teaching is about how our minds project this multiplicity and our minds create this duality that we experience. And that that is the problem. You see how this is all about the same kind of stuff. Now, even if we divide all that is the universe into materiality and mentality, Um, we probably, at least at this, it's much easier for us than anybody in the past would have been, and so you have to give a lot of credit to anybody that figured this out a long time ago, but but, um, at at this stage in uh, the development of ordinary, mundane human knowledge, we come to the point where we can see that all that we call a physical material is a single interconnected whole. The divisions within which are entirely uh, 
temporary and non-substantial. But do you know what I'm saying? The materiality, the material universe is a whole. Um, Particle physicists have discovered that particles don't even exist. Um, Two electrons that came into being in the Big Bang and traveled in opposite directions for 20 billion years and are on opposite sides of the universe, uh, if, if something affects one of them to change its state instantaneously at the same time, the, the, the other electron on the other side of the universe reflects that change. How can this be? But this is what physicists tell us. We may not be able to understand it intellectually, uh, but through, through science and mathematics and everything else like this, this is what the state of mundane human knowledge is to tell us that materiality is a vast, inseparable uh, oneness. Energy and matter are the same thing. Um, there is a connectedness that that somehow transcends limitations like the speed of light and things like that. Um, there is a kind of causality that permeates the physical universe and that there is no part of the physical universe that is isolated from that causality. Okay, let's go to the other side. Let's go to mentality. All of those things which are entirely non-physical, which would, of course, include things like uh, volitional uh, intentions and um, uh, karmic predispositions, right? Well, in the basis, on the basis of mundane knowledge, we may know an awful lot less about mentality than we do about materiality, but what we can do is say, well, what if the same thing is true of that which we call mentality? Maybe it is in the same way, so completely and thoroughly interconnected that any appearance of separateness and individuation is only uh, a, a uh, temporal phenomena that doesn't represent, that doesn't really correspond to an ultimate reality. What if that's the case with, with mentality? Uh, and if, as in the case of the material universe, everything, the, the, the causality permeates everywhere, then karma is a kind of causality and it will permeate everywhere and everything. And so we may not know exactly how it works, but all of a sudden, uh, doesn't that create the possibility that, well, just as you look like your grandmother or great-grandmother because of a material component, a material, a, a, an aspect of material causality that we can identify now and, and, and trace, that in terms of what happens over vast periods of time and huge numbers of lifetimes, that there is, on the level of mentality, a, a kind of uh, karmic causality that is connected and that connects everything together.
Can you at least imagine how that might be so? As a theory? As a hypothesis? Now, if if the realm of mentality is so interconnected uh, in a causal way, you know, one aspect of material causality is that um, you can take what is now and you can trace it backwards and figure out how it had to have been at some time in the past in order to be the way it is now, right? Like, uh, they do that on television and CSI. Of course, astronomers do that, figure out, you know, how all these galaxies and solar systems came into being and paleontologists. And I mean, we pretty much take it for granted that that if you 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 can look at a configuration of materiality as it is now, and uh, it's connected to the past. So there may not be a, a, a memory. It may not be a record that's written down somewhere that you can read, but there is a direct traceability. Well, supposing that too applies to the realm of, material, of mentality. Well, okay, everything's interconnected. Uh, my mind's not really separated from your mind. Uh, now, they say that uh, Buddhas and even people that haven't achieved enlightenment in certain meditation states can, uh, who have achieved certain levels of meditation, can know the minds of others. Well, of course, if everything's interconnected, why not? If any material event leaves an imprint on the material universe that can be read, why shouldn't any mental event leave an imprint on the mental part of the universe that could be read? Why couldn't the Buddha, on the night of his enlightenment, have reached back in the realm of mentality and reviewed hundreds of thousands of previous lives? Now, does that mean that they were all the same person? Or that even any two of them were the same person? Or is there any need for that? Not really. Because also, that was in the first watch of the night. In the second watch of the night, he reviewed the arising and passing away of all manner of beings. And it makes no reference to uh, anything that makes it sound like it was him in those previous manifestations. It's just he's reading. He's reading the record of causality, reading karma, basically. And as a result of which he understood the nature of karma and the working of karma, and which led to his subsequently teaching. So, if you can, if if you followed me on this and you can understand and accept these ideas, you'll see that there's really not a problem with. Uh, the doctrine that says there is no such thing as a permanent self, the doctrine that says uh, that karma is what passes from one life to another, 
and to speak of rebirth while clearly distinguishing between that and the uh, idea that other people hold of reincarnation of a self. So was the, the Buddha reading all the connected karmic imprints? Yes. That had been before or... She's just reading them all out there since they're all interconnected. I, I, I think uh, he, he uh, I, I think he read enough of them until he could see until the pattern emerged. He could see exactly what was going on. And then he, you know, then he didn't need to keep reading them anymore. So that's that's omniscience. Um, that is omniscience. That's the other thing that the omniscience of a Buddha, according to um, according to original Buddhism and according to many schools still today, the omniscience of a Buddha is that understanding. It's the understanding, it's the complete and total knowledge and understanding of the way things really are, which allows a Buddha to do something like know the mind of another or to review some past pattern of karma. Omniscience is not knowing everything, because why would anybody, let alone a Buddha, have the slightest interest in that? So a Buddha doesn't know what you had for breakfast and could care less. You know, and and a, a Buddha doesn't know whether uh, it's better for you to invest in one stock or uh, uh, a, a mutual fund. That's not what omniscience is about. Omniscience is about understanding how the mind works, how reality is created, how karma works. And uh, so the Buddha doesn't care either about your investments or what you did yesterday. Doesn't know, doesn't care, it's irrelevant. But the Buddha can understand what's going on in your mind that's creating your problems and what you could do differently to find solutions. That's omniscience. Based on knowledge of how things really work and that's how right. karma works. That's right. Yeah. Can you say the Buddha knows what's going on in your heart? What's that? The Buddha knows what's going on in your heart. Yes, in a sense, that's, that would be a good way to put it. The Buddha knows what's going on in your heart, because it's what's going on in everybody's heart. And remember, we're not separate. The Buddha is the one that knows that we're not separate, that there is no separateness. And there's no your heart and my heart that can really have two different kinds of things going on. Just because this is something that's it's a, it's a it's a distinction I find really interesting and something that I think a lot about. So I wanted to bring to you some thoughts about it, seeing yeah. and combative. Um, because, well, as a little background, I I've, I've been really curious, just sitting and listening to your Dharma talks for for a while now, um, and I think a lot of times I, I consider your perspective 
uh, in the context of what your profession was before, mm-hmm. the connection I had to that loosely, or my interest there, and um, and so and so without calling you out on your specific philosophies, for a long time I really uh, the way you framed um, the way you kind of framed the the mechanics behind meditation and awakening. Uh, it's always struck me as very materialist. Um, to use just a, a blanket philosophic term, but I think it's a really useful term. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of the perspective I have now, even though I was raised in a completely different environment. Um, and I find a lot of kind of sentimentality with that worldview, this kind of magical thinking and spiritualism and reincarnation, all these kind of things that I kind of lumped there, um, I think with some justification. Um, but it's interesting to talk about I mean, the, the reincarnation thing's always been really kind of a curious a curious topic. And it's really interesting to hear it kind of as a cultural distinction where it really is more the Tibetan Theravada or whatever, I guess, more Tibetan uh, offshoot with the tokus and all that. And that the tradition that you're coming out of, um, which kind of appeals to me, is this, it's, it's much more intuitive that there really isn't any permanence to the self. And the way I've heard you describe it a lot is that and the way I kind of experienced it myself is, is that it's just a lot of conditioned patterns. Um, and in my mind, all this really reasonably can take place in this organic mass inside my head. Um, I don't understand the exact mechanism, but um, you know, this idea that there's this karmic causality or an intentional causality that kind of explains the that makes the rebirth idea distinct from just this idea of physical causality, which I know you've also acknowledged as a, as a, as a distinction, um, seems kind of unnecessary. Um, that, and, and, and I was trying to figure out where, where you were going with it, and it sounds like there's this idea, you have this kind of dualistic um, suggestion, and I've heard you use it as a suggestion before, that there's the, the mental realm and the physical realm, that they actually exist very dis- distinctly mm-hmm. from one another in some way. And that, uh, and that you've heard the term panpsychism, or this idea that we're all connected on this mental realm, potentially. Um, and just the same way I can measure something physically, touch it, study it, I, if I have enough clarity and you know, I've reached that state of, of pure awareness and lack of restriction in the self that I can go into other people's minds, or a, a Buddha can do that. Um, and I don't know, to me it's just, like it, it all sounds like it's coming out of mythology. It's like a way of justifying this, maybe what is just mythology. I mean, somebody 2,500 years ago, they have these verbal teachings that they had this experience of reliving their lives, or these kind of anecdotal stories about tokus who pick out the right pot, or children, and all that. I, and I guess what I'm really coming, coming to, what I'd like to maybe just ask you directly, <laughs> although I, I'm very hesitant to ask anything directly about your experience, is whether you had the experience that there was something that would be inexplicable based on your five senses uh, being the cause of some knowledge, or, or, or even if you've known people that have had that experience. Um, I mean, just what, what would, I mean, guess where the knowledge comes from, where that, where that belief that you, you maybe have, or at least that you're presenting comes from. Okay. If I can ask that point of a question, if that was pointed. <laughs> okay. Well, you, 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 you brought up a number of things, and I'd like to touch on some of them, if I remember them all. First of all, the material-mental duality. Yeah. That 
is an illusion as well. But, you know, I... It's so much a part of the way we think and understand. And we are in a culture that has advanced the study of the physical in such a way. But the distinction between the physical and the mental is an illusion. There, there is no such distinction. There is only ultimate reality is not these two parallel things. It's a, it's a, it's a oneness. Okay. Um, secondly, the truth of things is much more magical and amazing than the magical ideas that we cling to. It, it, the romantic notions of uh, an omniscient Buddha in the sense that somebody just already knows everything's happening everywhere. That kind of romantic notion is so much less than the reality and clinging to that notion is actually an obstacle to moving to that higher reality because that notion is fixed in the idea that all of this this world that we perceive is real and that self-existently rather than there being an a, a, a to the degree that each of us is a separate mind, each of us has generated a separate universe. You know, so there's not a universe out there for somebody to be omniscient about. You know, that's that's the illusion and uh, reincarnation. The things that emotionally appeal to us and the fascination that it provides at the idea of reincarnation is rooted in these simplistic illusions. And so you have to be willing to let go of the romantic attachment to these ideas. You have of the, ma- of the attachment to, to magic and wonder because this view of magic and wonder is really at a rather primitive and, and comparatively speaking childlike level. The reality goes way beyond that. Makes make this look as trivial and superficial as it is. And then the final. Well, let's see. We're ready for final part of this. Um, <laughs> Okay, another thing I want to say is that um, we, the only way that we can get to where we want to be from where we are is using the kinds of understanding and perception that is available to us now. And so 
<coughs> you described it as a materialist view. Uh, personally, I would probably think of it more as a psychological view. But both of those, essentially where we find ourselves as 21st century educated human beings is uh, we have to bootstrap ourselves from the materialist psychological views that come readily to us and use those as the tools. You know, and so we need to understand how meditation works and how enlightenment works in the terms of what we experience in order to make it work for us and to take us to where we're trying to go. Where we're trying to go to, though, is the pure experience of ultimate reality. And And the only way that we can know, uh, when we say ultimate reality, even that, to tell you the truth, uh, if you look at early Buddhism, the, the, the Buddha would have chewed my ears off for using the word like ultimate, even with regard to what we're talking about here. You know. But in terms of knowing how things really are, we have to stop projecting illusion. Um, you've heard the phrase stopping the world, stopping the mind. We have to stop the mind which is creating the world. And when we stop the mind in its incessant process of creating the world, we stop the world. And when we stop the world of illusion, then we have an experience of things as they really are. And it's, in its essence, it could not possibly be simpler. What makes it difficult, though, is that our minds, it is such a deeply ingrained habit and tendency and process of our minds to keep generating this illusion. And it's very, very difficult to uh, stop something that is so powerfully ingrained there. Now how do I know? I've stopped my mind and stopped the world and I have experienced that. And ever since, I've been trying to figure out the best way to help other people to have that experience. The problem is, and I know other people have had that experience, I know quite a number of other people, well, maybe not quite a number, but, uh, you know, it's all relative, right? I know several. And what I've discovered and, and in addition to the ones I've known personally, those that you know I know of through their writings and teachings and things like that. And what I see over and over again is problem. What made the Buddha and, and, and makes the Buddha stand out so separate from 
from all of these others is that someone for whom that has become a reality, all they know is how it happened for them. And they don't... And and to have had that kind of experience doesn't mean that you can necessarily help anybody else have it at all. And the usual (coughs) approach to trying is to try to make everybody else go through exactly the same things that you did. And that's because there is the a lack of understanding of of the process at a depth that can become more universal. I don't do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah? Absolutely. I the Buddha, he's called the Samasam Buddha because he was able to teach he was able to teach in such a way that he led many kinds of different people and many different kinds of circumstances to achieve this. Now, if the Buddha had been like the rest of us, he would have said, well, um, I went and I studied with this teacher and I learned this, so you've got to do that. And then you've got to go find another teacher who will teach you to do that, which I also did, and then I went and I practiced asceticism, and I lived on two grains of rice a day, and I, so you have to do that, yeah, and there's no way around it, and it has to happen in that order, it doesn't do any good to practice asceticism and, and live on two grains of rice before you've learned these other methods from these other teachers, and so on and so forth, that's what I keep seeing happening. All these teachers are saying, well, you, you've got to, it, it can only happen this way. This is the only possible way it can happen. It. And then they get in arguments with each other. Achancha and Mahasi Sayada, you know, accusing each other of, of not teaching the right way because they followed a different path. And the only path they know is the one they followed. And it's the only possible right one. And I would really love to penetrate beyond this. And this is what I talk about with other people is, come on, let's talk about our experiences. Let's try to find out what, what the similarities and the differences are. And, you know, what the Buddha was able to do, uh, some people, like um, Sariputra, went into deep concentration and he achieved all of the levels of enlightenment from the jhanas. But there were other people that the Buddha taught that became enlightened while sitting at the dinner table listening to him talk. And they never experienced the jhana. So, I mean, that's a pretty big divergence in paths. So he knew how to get people there without saying, well, you you know, the only way to get there is, is you have to be sitting here eating dinner and this is what you have to have on your plate when somebody says the right things to you. you know. uh, he understood it at a depth. And, and that's what... That's what the world needs. And I, I don't know whether I will ever have, but that's what I'm trying to discover. And uh, we're trying to guide other people along this path and see what works and what doesn't, while all the time, I mean, you know, as far as I'm concerned, everybody is, in a certain sense, everybody's a part of this research because, you know, what works for you, or what works for Audrey, or what works for any of you, if I can see it's getting you closer than, you know, and I try to put in the framework of everything else I understand and learn, it helps me maybe to have a little bit deeper understanding, uh, maybe how I can guide someone else.
because we're all different. Ultimate reality is there right now. And you know, I'm trying to, I'm doing something, I don't know if you realize that, those of you who've been coming back regularly, but I'm telling you a lot of stuff that nobody else will tell you. You know, if you ever find out, then you have to find out the hard way, doing it the way they did it, you know. And, uh, they, you know, I'm telling you what emptiness really is. I, I hope you're getting it. I don't know if you are, but I'm trying to tell you what it is. I'm trying to tell you what not-self means. I'm trying to tell you what nirvana is. Uh, you know, uh, at least to the degree that I understand it in worldly terms, because that's that's the, the thing, you know. Um, you live in your universe, and my mind creates my universe. And even though I might understand something that transcends both of those, still, when my mind is creating my universe, and I have to use language to try to tap into your mind and the universe, it creates and communicates something that allows you to do the same thing. It's a big challenge. I sure hope it works and made you walk, you know, but it's all I can do. Um, it's, I mean, <clears throat> so I, I've been, you know, always interested um, in kind of asking more pointed questions about kind of the experience of, uh, experiencing what it's like to be in your position. Um, and, you know, I mean, I, I was more curious kind of academically or whatever um, about the about the, the, the questions around um, uh, rebirth and all that. Um, but I, I do wonder, well, I guess one of the things I was wondering, why is there, I mean, is I, I get the impression, some of what I've heard, part of the fear with a teacher that's re- gone to a certain level, reached a certain stage or whatever that's, you know, through, through, through diligence, through their practice over time, um, the part of the fear of kind of putting things in explicit terms is the fact that it's just going to create more attachment, mm-hmm. and that you know along the way. I mean, and that, I've talked to other people. Who, you know, some of my friends said he wish he hadn't heard about the jhanas, you know, um, because it's kind of like you know it sets this kind of what you already know is a false ideal. I mean, a false conception out there because you don't know what it is until you get there. So you're going to be constantly pawing around during meditation to wonder if that's the jhana. And I guess that's part of the fear. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other side of it for me is, you know, I'm spending 45 minutes in the morning, <laughs> valuable time, you know, sitting and following my breath. And when I stop and I observe my life now versus before I started my practice, I see real benefits that I can point to. Um, but they're still somewhat abstract. Um, they're not concrete things, you know. It's like I know I do realize I have more of a, of a pause uh, when I'm going to be reactive and things like that. So there, there are, but to be able to just ask you or ask somebody in your position what it's like experientially, I think is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously I have to take it with a grain of salt, and that's my responsibility, but uh, I really appreciate it because, I mean, we're, we're putting an incredible amount of effort into potentially into, you know, trying to attain the state. Um, Absolutely, so, yeah. So, but I, I really, I, I don't know. It's Some people are putting hugely more time and effort than 45 minutes oh, a day. Oh, absolutely, yeah. 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 And it's a, it's a big act of faith. It's a great, huge act of faith to do that. And of desire, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yes. And, you know, and, and this is that same situation I talked about. From my experience, you need, you need to develop that skill in mind that we call concentration and mindful awareness. And so I have to keep encouraging people to do that, sit and meditate and develop concentration. Uh, and I'm not in the least attached to the idea that there's any one way of developing concentration that is necessarily better or more perfect. As a matter of fact, I think that uh, different things work better for different people. But, you know, from my point of view uh, and my own experience, uh, if I'm going to help you, I'm going to say, well, you know, I know if you develop the kind of concentration I'm talking about, which is not just the ability to disappear into single-pointedness, but that you have a mind that you can use uh, and and mindful awareness, that I just know that that's going to get you a whole lot further ahead along on the path than, uh, than not doing so, you know. So that's why I'm really glad you spend the 45 minutes, and I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Uh, and not only that, I want to provide you the advice. The, I, I never had any intention of teaching. More than anything else, what got me into teaching was all these people who were coming to me been meditating for so long, and they didn't have enough concentration to stay with the breath for 15 minutes. You know, it's like, there is a problem here. And... And so I want to, the same thing as anything, I want to understand better and, and better how I can guide you to more quickly develop that skill where you, where you have that degree of concentration. You know, and basically so that you can leave it behind. A lot of people think, well, okay, so what good is it going to do me to have this great concentration? Well, it's, you're going to use it. It's not like watching your breath forever is the answer, because it's not, you know. But watching the breath will give you the that critical mental faculty that then you can apply, uh, and, and that you'll naturally, spontaneously begin to apply uh, in other ways. I just wanted to clarify, um, and I don't know how that came across when I was saying that about the 45 minutes. Yeah. I, I mean, and also about about this, I mean, kind of making it sound absurd to be following my breath. One of the things that I found really useful, you know, Coming, coming to hear you and, and working with you is that you've made it really clear why we're doing it, yeah. and it makes a lot of intuitive sense to me. So that is that is a strong motivator. So um, I don't know. It's just if that came across as though that was a, a criticism of what yeah. I feel like I'm doing. I knew exactly what you were saying. Okay. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, no, I mean that is that it makes. I mean it really does make a lot of sense to yeah. me. That's that's the point. I mean, yeah. So anyway, yeah. but I I understand too. You know, that uh, even though a lot of times it's clear, there's also the times where it's not so clear. And you ask yourself, why am I doing it? <laughs> so I understand that completely. I know. And so I didn't misunderstand what you were saying. Yeah. But um, so this, yeah, you, you brought up the fact that, you know, you tell somebody too much and 
they start clinging to the ideas. Now the worst thing is that the mind starts fabricating around these things and thinking, uh, and, and you begin to, uh, to I, should, I, I should continue to say that, the mind thinks, and the mind begins thinking that it understands more than it does. And that is, that is, a, that is a danger. But I've come to the conclusion that what I see is without somebody telling people these things, their mind's clinging to a bunch of even more inaccurate stuff anyway. So even if your mind clings to the thing that I tell you, you know, I I don't see it as necessarily worse than the alternative. You know, so uh, I'll tell you that you are not going to be reincarnated. That may come as a shock to you, but believe me, I think you're better off. <laughs> uh, thinking you understand better than you do based on my explanation than walking around thinking that reincarnation is the way things happen, because it isn't. Uh, And it's a good thing, because this is, the reality is so much better. (laughs) The way things really are is so much better than any way that you could imagine them. You don't need to worry about it. So... Maybe let, let that be one main point that I offer to you. Because I have worried over this last few weeks as I've been revealing more of this and more of this and peeling away more and more of the fondly held illusions that are precious to people is, is that they'll feel like they're losing something. That, oh, I'm not going to be reborn. Maybe I'll go become a Christian and at least I get to go to heaven. <laughs> um, but if I can just keep reinforcing that, that, that this is a good thing because, because the, reality, the reality is better than these naive, simplistic ideas that your, your mind tends to, to gravitate towards. And I, I really understand why the Buddha always said, all I teach is suffering and freedom from suffering. And <clears throat> you find lots of things that fall outside that category in your mind. What's that? I said, I myself, yeah. speak for myself, um, find lots of things that fall in my mind mm-hmm. outside that category. Hey, suffering is not a consideration. I mean, when I started coming back, it was very interesting. Someone just said to me, you know, that what you just presented is is what we're doing. That's the criteria, and there is no other. And I think for me, it becomes then a moral question. Yeah, I can live with this. Actually, I quite enjoy these states of well-being that I was in, but I can also look at this because it's open. Mm-hmm. I'm not dealing with certain people, I'm not dealing with the narrowness of training. <laughs> but then, you know, it goes from there. It becomes like, for me, a moral commitment based on a certain understanding that's always going to be challenged by the other part of my mind. Like, when I went through this period of trying to fix things, mm-hmm. you know, pretty heavily, with great love, 
uh, and uh, uh, it actually had nothing to do with trying to alleviate uh, my own suffering. I mean, I think that's an important consideration if you're uh, is bringing it back to yourself as equal with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, Absolutely. With my history, many of the the history of people in society too. So. It seems like in, in our culture you can stray from that criteria pretty easily because we don't really give a crap if you suffer or not. In fact, That's right. if you're not suffering, there might be a problem. You might not be achieving enough. That's right. Yes, exactly. What's wrong with you? We've got some real uh, strange <laughs> belief systems that, yeah. we, that are below the conscious level. That's right. It's nice to look at that. Yeah. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. I didn't want to argue. I just, did you have a question? I was just enjoying what you were saying. <laughs> well, Terry McGee has helped me a lot. Anyway, um, I have to ask this. I think you told me the answer before, but um, it wasn't because I wasn't ready to hear it. I just keep forgetting it. I wonder if you could help me. Um, mindful awareness, uh, as it is, as the word is in Pali, does this belong to one of the five heaps? Does mindful awareness uh, belong to? Uh, the the part of uh, you know the, the the parts of the five aggregates that are involved is obviously consciousness, right? Mindful awareness is being conscious of. And another part See, of it... I wasn't it, sure about that. What's that? I wasn't sure about that, Master Chibadas. In my mind, I separate and currently in this moment. Separate. Mindful awareness has no meaning at all if you're not conscious in the moment. Is it completely subsumed within the conscious? It's not completely subsumed within the conscious. Mindful awareness is a function of the conditioned, constructed, uh, and constructing mind. So when we're going around practicing mindful awareness, the mind that's practicing mindful awareness is the constructing mind operating in, in the way that it normally does, but in a more pre- refined way. The, uh, the uh, sankharas, the chitta sankharas, the mental formations, are an important part of mindful awareness. The chitta sankharas are doing, what they're doing is they're directing the attention and sustaining the attention. You know, when we meditate and direct and sustain the attention, uh, in terms of the five aggregates, that's the chitta sankharas that are producing that volition, that intention, that action over and over again. And so in practicing mindful awareness, it's the chitta sankharas that direct the attention, focus the attention, uh, and that basically remind themselves. I mean, the chitta sankharas are, are massive different tendencies that remind themselves not to judge, that remind themselves 
just to, to observe without judgment and without attachment. But the, that particular, the function of the aggregate uh, of consciousness is absolutely essential to that. It plays, it plays a most crucial role. In looking at the five personality factors, the five aggregates, uh, consciousness is set apart in its own very special nature and the role it plays. You know, and we talk about mindful. The the, uh, the word in Pali that's usually translated as mindfulness is better translated as mindful awareness, and uh, I consider the best way to translate it, although it is a bit clumsy verbally, is fully conscious awareness. And what that does is recognizes that you can have all kinds of different degrees of awareness, but what what we're after, the word sati, what we're after is fully conscious awareness. Uh, this is in the context of the depths of the uh, mental. Well, the the I amount forgot. of uh, of the uh, I'm illuminating factor of mind that is present, the strength of the illumination that is is present. That's the fully conscious aspect of the awareness. And, and is it a, is it reflected by? Awareness of the, the depths of the sankara. I forgot the name of the, the mental formations. Well, the, the, the mental formations are what uh, is guiding and directing it. And That's the mental formations are what are also limiting other mental formations from obscuring it. This clear light of conscious awareness, uh, the degree to which it can illuminate that towards which it is directed uh, depends on the degree to which other formations interpose themselves and obscure uh, what's present. So uh, do you, you see what I'm saying, the clear, clear seeing aspect? Well, yes, but the implications of that are kind of uh, stopping me because I mean, argues for the idea of people have certain seeds, and, mm-hmm. and you have to make different seeds. Maybe others don't, or in some way they aren't so ready to ripen, or something. But yeah, well, yeah, that's right. We're different. Some of us have, you know, we have we have different seeds. We have different mental formations that are going to come into play. But but I hear you saying seeds for mindful awareness. Uh, in in terms of. Yes, we have different seeds from and and wherever we start, we have to. That's where we have to work from. Okay, this is uh, re, the sankharas that are the constructing aspect of the mind, and ultimately that's what you want to overcome. But in the meantime, when the mind is still in its constructing mode, you want to have the right sankharas present and you want to activate the right sankharas in the moment because it's actually the sankharas that you're ultimately trying to overcome that you need in the present 
to get you closer to where you're trying to go. I mean, it's this definitely by our bootstraps that we do this. And so uh, you have to have, you have the sankharas that normally are active that create the obscuration. And so you have to generate different sankharas that, that uh, are going to uh, uh, keep that from happening or, or gradually minimize that from happening. And then in generating those, it in turn generates like bigger ones or something? It, it generates which? It in turn generates bigger ones or more luminous ones. That's right. It does. Okay. Exactly, yeah. Because, and that's the thing that keep in mind that every single moment, every experience you have becomes a part of those sankharas. And so okay. every moment of yeah. clear seeing that you experience yeah. increases the clear seeingness within the totality of the sankharas that you carry forward. And they're more powerful. And they they're more powerful. Yeah. In exactly the same way that uh, every time you succumb to, to ignorance, desire, and aversion, it makes those sankharas yeah. more powerful. Which is really a big thing to keep in mind. Every time you find yourself, you know, with those <laughs> kinds of formations arising, you know, like they are you, you're, you, you know, you, you're undoing some of the work you did. Uh, you're allowing them to, but I mean, you can't beat yourself up about it. You just got to recognize it and, and realize that okay, this is this is the kind of thing I don't need. There's, you know, it's like there's a lot in our favor because we aren't unified as a person, you know, really. So we can have this, these horrible things going on, but a part of us can kind of be laughing about it in a way. Yes, yes, And yes. so that, even if you can't get to a point of mindful awareness, like that, my day was like that all day today. I had the most mm-hmm. amazing, yeah. I don't know why, but I was just like, you know, not, not this is funny or even laughing, but just, mm-hmm. I don't know how to explain it. But so I, I realized that was, it was a nice experience. Yeah. And it wasn't the usual mindful awareness I intentionally practice, you know. Right. Yeah. Slowing, but but that was just make, maybe another some another seed ripening that I had an experience before. I was part of the luminosity group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. is that true? That like experience yeah, that's right. going differently. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and and our mind that the process is really really rapid. So we we we, we can alternate between uh, uh, luminosity and obscuration very quickly. You know. So we can we can find ourselves experiencing both at once. Find ourselves suffering and also uh, seeing the uh, uh, the unnecessariness of our suffering at the same time. But Can you just uh, define that some part a little more? It sounds like it's kind of just the components that make up consciousness. Is that broad? It's a. It's uh, well, we could say that what we're talking about here is the components that make up mind. All of the different uh, things that make up mind.
all of the different mental processes that constitute mind. And not just the processes themselves, but also the mental content that those processes operate on. That's that. Uh, that's what we mean by the sankharas. So, out of the totality of what's mind, when we talk about the five aggregates, what we've teased out from the whole are consciousness, feelings, and perceptions, and sort of everything else that makes up mind is basically. Sankaras, their formations. Um, they include uh, they include volitional formations. You know, uh, our intentions arise as a result of all of these other things that are already present. And so, what manifests? You know, if we look at a human being behaving. Uh, by behaving, they're acting in first this way and that way in response to the various things that they experience. That's what behaving is. And if we break that down into individual moments of behavior, you know, and say, well, there's there's there, there's a volitional intention arriving arising there, and then there's one arising there, and there's one arising there, and we watch them as they as this individual. Uh, moves through a, a period of time and a, and a series of experiences. <clears throat> Each one of those is uh, a, a, a sort of a mathematical result of all these tendencies and these past experiences that they bring with them into that moment. Uh, so the volitional intention that arises in each moment is uh, is a momentary uh, calculation that produces a particular behavior that goes in one one way. And we could say that the behavior of the person over a period of time is uh, an unfolding uh, an unfolding pattern uh, as a result of the interactions of all of these. Do you remember in The Matrix, I think it was in the second movie, where uh, he's, he's told that uh, that basically he's a, a, a I, I can't remember the words, but he's like the non-zero remainder. That, that's what makes him different like than everybody else. Or something. What's that? I'm just the residual or something like yeah, that. Yeah, residual, yeah, right. So he's, he's like a mathematical anomaly. It should have come up zero, but it came up as a value. Well, essentially, uh, you know, that's what we all are, is we're, we're this uh, non-zero sum of all these different uh, influences that are operating. So uh, that aggregate of mental formation includes all of these different things, including those volitional intentions. The reason that uh, perceptions, feelings, and consciousness have been separated out 
from the rest of the formations is because they play a special, unique role or separating them out serves a special, unique purpose in, in terms of our being able to understand the nature of the mind. I don't want to keep you any later. Thank you for being patient. And I I can't say enough times how much I hope that this is is helping you and clarifying things for you. What's that? I'm working towards zero. <laughs> okay, well, thank you again, and uh, I look forward to seeing you next week. And I hope you have a wonderful week that's saturated with mindful awareness and positive uh, practice experiences. <laughs>